Uh, you probably don't know this yet, but my voice is on borrowed time, so I'm going to get right to it this morning. Believing one thing, then experiencing the opposite, can produce significant psychological angst. When your expectations, which are deeply rooted in your beliefs, go unmet or unanswered, you suffer what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. It's a mental disconnect of the deepest order between what you think ought to be and what actually is. It's like when I went to grad school a few years ago. I had a friend tell me, a full load when you go to grad school is three classes a semester. What he didn't know, but what I did, is that I'm better than most people. And so I signed up for four classes a semester. And in my first semester, it actually went pretty well. Turns out I'm a pretty strong student when it comes to academics. And the second semester and the third semester and the fourth semester, I had four semesters running of four classes each, and it worked out pretty well for me. Until the fifth semester. And a few things had changed. I was still better than everybody, so I signed up for four classes. But I now had two kids and one on the way. I was working two part-time jobs on campus and preaching on the weekends. One of the classes I was taking was well outside my field of discipline. It was in systems theory, which is pretty heady stuff. And another one was in anthropology, where I was reading some pretty dense anthropologists. It didn't take me more than a week or so to realize that I hated my life, and I was going to die (laughs) if I kept up this pace. But see, there's another thing that I firmly believe about myself, and that's I'm not a quitter. And so I sat in the middle of this really frustratingly difficult circumstance where I dug myself into a hole I couldn't get out of unless I either changed my beliefs. (laughs) This is cognitive dissonance. Uh, Because I'm standing before you today alive and mostly well, uh, I did make the wise choice, which is I ate some humble pie and I went to the registrar's office and I dropped a class. That was ridiculously hard for me to do. And they just looked at me with an eyebrow raised and said, we'll let you sign up for all these classes anyway. When times are good, we just, we kind of plunk along. One day rolls into the next, life seems like a breeze like when we first come to faith in Jesus and, and we're excited and, and we're welcomed and we're hungry. We're hungry to understand God's word. There's an awful lot of God's word here. It's really small print. There's a lot of God's word here. And it takes a long time to get into and to digest. And so we, we start to dig into it and we start reading it with fervor and, and we're talking about it in our churches and we're, we begin to dot our doctrinal I's and we start to cross our philosophical T's and, and we wordsmith and we tinker and we, we get all our beliefs just right. And we're excited to be part of this new faith that has finally given us this coherent understanding of the world. But then life spills coffee all over our beautiful work of art. And it becomes a little harder to make sense of. The letters start to run together and all those sentences that were so just perfect, they don't work like they used to. You know, maybe a straight-A student gets a B. A strong athlete doesn't get 
picked for the team. In spite of working crazy long hours and getting really good results, you get passed over for a promotion and suddenly all these things and life was just going well and, and you thought it was just supposed to kind of keep ticking along and, and life just spilt coffee all over it. You get in a spat at church for the first time and you realize these are like real people that you're in church with. Sometimes though, life doesn't just spill coffee. Sometimes life vomits all over your aspirations and your lofty theological treaties. And we can't hardly be in the same room with them, let alone make sense of our beliefs. We have an absolute best friend who backstabs us in a way we couldn't possibly fathom. Runs away with Half or all the startup money we were going to build that company of our dreams with. You might lose your health in a critically debilitating, frustratingly simple little way. Little little scratch at work. Oh, come on, it was nothing. A little band-aid, no problem. And next thing you know, you're in the hospital. And the question is, do you want to amputate or do you want to die? You have the untimely death of a loved one. Your whole sector of the economy just collapses. Not only are you out of a job, you have nowhere to go for a job because that part of the economy is just over. It's cognitive dissonance. And it sounds an awful lot like what the community in the book of Hebrews was experiencing. I invite you to grab a Bible if you have it with you and open to chapter 2 of Hebrews. They're a community who has believed in Jesus and who has believed fervently in Jesus. Their faith has been put to the test and they've met that test. But they're having a tough go of it. And so let's start to read in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, At present, we don't see it. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That is cognitive dissonance. You see, they'd come to faith. They'd believed fervently. They'd passed the message along to another generation. They'd been faithful witnesses even in the midst of, if we're to jump ahead to chapter 10, even in the midst of insult and persecution, of imprisonment. Theirs was a mature faith. There was a faith that had been tested through the trials of fire, of life. They had lost property. But here they have grown tired They've grown confused because they believe and they preach every Sunday that all things, all things are in subjection to Jesus. But they don't see it. 
If Jesus were really Lord over everything, would he really let his people be treated this way endlessly? I mean, for a while, sure, we can put up with it. We, we've got kind of the stamina to push through. But for weeks and for months and for years on end, it kind of feels like you've abandoned us, Jesus. This kind of cognitive dissonance, this kind of deep mental and spiritual disconnect is exhausting. So, so the author of Hebrews leaps on an opportunity leaps on an opportunity to remind them of what they do see. They see Jesus in flesh and in blood. They see Jesus who is of the same family. They do see Jesus who stands in solidarity with them. But we see Jesus, he says in verse 9. But to understand what he's about to say about Jesus, we really need to understand the interpretive option that he's taken here from the psalm that he's just quoted and that we've just read. Look again at chapter 2 and verse 7. One way to interpret this verse is to say, you made him a little lower than the angels, which is a spatial orientation. We could get Brother John Casella back up here or any number of my taller brothers and sisters here, and we would say, God has made me a little lower than you. It's a spatial orientation. But more importantly and more significantly, and as a matter of fact, if we don't understand it this second way, we totally miss what the author is about to say, is to understand it temporally, which is in terms of time. And so that verse could just as easily read, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. And when we reread the quotation in this way, what we start to see in very broad strokes is the story of Jesus who leaves heaven for a short time to live on the earth before returning to glory. It seems like a small distinction, but it's absolutely crucial because it's this middle part of the cosmic story that is crucial for answering the cognitive dissonance of this community of faith. Because it's the middle part of Jesus' story that resonates with us. Here's some selections out of verses 9 to 11 and 14 to 18. But we do see Jesus, the author writes, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer or author of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jumping down to verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. 
verse 18, because he was he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Do you hear what the author is reminding them of? Yes, Jesus is glorified now, but it wasn't always that way. And the path to glory was not easy. Jesus, the author reminds us, is of the same family. He's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He shares in their humanity. He was fully human in every way. He was tempted. And so he can help those who are being tempted. He's experienced what it's like when life vomits all over nice-sounding doctrines and perfect prayers. Jesus knows this. And don't forget it, church, or we miss the story of Jesus. But there's another crucial point that we must not miss. He's able to help us not just because he has experienced flesh and blood, not just because he was fully human. He's able to help us because in his death, he has destroyed the power of death and he has pioneered a new way for us to follow him. So the author of Hebrews uses exactly that word in chapter 2 and verse 10, archegos. Probably translated author in the Bible you have in your hand. But better translated, I think, by pioneer or my personal favorite, bushwhacker. It's a word that can refer to a ruler, can refer to a prince, uh, the first in a series, or to a founder or originator. It was often used as the one who founded a city and gave it its name. In the Greek Old Testament, it was the exact word that they used for leaders over people. So Jephthah, for example, who delivered Gilead from the Ammonites, he led them to victory. He led them out of slavery. He was the pioneer. He was the archegos. In Greek literature, it was the originator or the founder of a city. It was somebody who served as a guide and a pathfinder. It was the one who cleared the way through the thick jungle, who knew how to find the oases in the desert and avoid the sand pits as he took his followers to the destination. It's the archegos. Jesus is the one who has walked before us. He's not the one who sat at the back of the lines and said, go that way. Oh, that didn't work. We lost one. Pull back. Let's try this way. He's not the general who sits in the room and deploys the troops. He's not the coach that sits on the sidelines and tells the players how to play. He's the quarterback. In the thick of things. Leading the charge. He's the captain of the platoon. The first out of the trench. To show his men the way forward. He's the one who's the archegos. He is the pioneer who meets death head on and shows us a new way. So to follow Jesus, you guys know this, but to follow Jesus is to take the path of Jesus, which is not from glory to glory, but from suffering to glory. The difficulties that the community faces are not an anomaly in the walk of faith. It's an integral part of it. Jesus suffered 
and then was raised to glory. So the community can look to Jesus and they can endure the present suffering that they might also be raised in glory because they find themselves smack dab in the middle of the story of Jesus. And so Jesus is not only the one who stands in solidarity with his people, understanding suffering and weakness and temptation. He's the one who has opened the way to life, who has brought many sons to glory through his own suffering and death. Which means... Which means that we can trust Jesus. Because we too see Jesus in flesh and blood. Experiencing real life and yet remaining faithful to God. We see Jesus who is tempted to use his power to serve his own needs in the desert. Ah, just turn the rock into bread. You're hungry. Nobody knows. You're not the first one to be offered a bribe. You're not the first one to be told to use your power self-servingly. You're not the first one. Jesus was there long before. You're not the first one to be told to indulge in self-promoting popularity. You're not the first one to be tempted to worship other gods. We see Jesus. He was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus got tired. Jesus got frustrated. Jesus got tired not physically, but also from the crowds. He was tired of seeing people, and so he withdrew to lonely places to pray. He avoided them. He got burnout. He got angry. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who was loved by the crowds one day and who wanted to throw him off the cliff the next. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who wept, who was ripped apart, whose heart was broken when his best friend Lazarus died. He was crushed and he wept. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who was betrayed and abandoned by everyone. Everyone at the cross. Not James, not Peter, not John stayed with him. They all fled his own father. Turned a blind eye. We see Jesus who experienced humanity. We see Jesus who experienced the brokenness that we experience, the temptations that we experience. We see Jesus. And it is this Jesus who after everything he has suffered still says in the midst of the community of the Hebrews and says in the midst of our community today, take a look at verse 12. Jesus speaking, I will declare your name, God, to my brothers. Jesus speaks in the middle of our community. I will declare your name to these people. 
In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. After everything Jesus has been through, after his betrayal, after his suffering and his unjust death, when he comes back to life, he stands in our midst and he says in verse 13, I will trust him. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who after everything said God is worth following to the end. He is trustworthy to the end. I call that street cred. Last week, as I was starting to nurse the beginnings of my illness for this week, I sat back and watched the riders get thrashed. Uh, if you guys watched the game at all. Part of the reason they got thwomped is because they had a very inexperienced quarterback standing in the pocket for milliseconds too long and multiple seconds too long. And as I sat on the couch somewhat incensed that the riders couldn't just get it together, and I think it was Hamilton that thrashed them. It's just a bad memory. I've blotted from my memory. I'm like, let go of the ball. Like, this is how you throw. Like this, okay? Just see and just... Throw it. It's going to be better than what's happening right now, which is quarterback sack after quarterback sack. Um, and I've got a lot of, you know, experience in football. You see my technique? And I've worn a lot of football pads. I haven't set a foot on the football field. I'm an armchair quarterback. I've got nothing. You don't want me leading your football team, whether they're tykes or in the CFL. I've got no credibility there. I haven't walked it. I think of Jim Putman, who was a coach. Uh, he's a pastor now in Post Falls with Real Life Ministries. He's a wrestler and a coach by training. And I remember he had a top wrestler one time. He tells the story of his top wrestler coming to him and says, you know, coach, I think I've outgrown you. I need to, I need to find somebody else to kind of take me to the next level. And... Jim kind of took it in stride and said, okay, well, just before you go, let's, uh, let's you and me wrestle. And then you make your decision. And so they both suited up and they got out on the floor and this young man who thought he had it all together, thought the coach was nothing but a bunch of words, got pinned three times in under 10 seconds. And it was somehow the most humiliating version of whatever that can happen in wrestling. I'm not a wrestling coach. That's street credibility. When a coach like that talks, you listen. And so when Jesus stands in the midst of our church and says, I trust him. That's got some pretty powerful credibility. There was a man by the name of Polycarp, about 160 A.D. He was a bishop of Smyrna, of a church, rather, in Smyrna, which is a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Izmir in Turkey. And that particular area was devoted substantially to Roman worship, which is we worship the emperor, whoever that living person is. We deify them. We treat them as if they're a god. Polycarp, at this particular time, this story I'm about to tell you, is about 86 
He's probably the last surviving person to have ever known an apostle. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, which is to renounce his faith in Jesus. Would have been pretty easy, I think. He said this, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and and say, down with the atheists, that is, down with the Christians, the ones who don't worship the emperor. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Eighty-six years I have served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? And my savior. I have wild animals here. The proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them Polycarp said. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good. To turn to what is evil. If you despise the animals. I will have you burned. He threatened me with fire. Which burns for an hour. Polycarp says. And is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. It was all done in the time it takes to tell. The crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks from the shops and the public baths. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, undid his belt, and tried to take off his sandals, something he wasn't used to because... The faithful always raced to do it for him. But when they went to fix him with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And so, he was burned for Jesus. It's a story of a man who heard the words of Jesus in the midst of the congregation. He is faithful. He heard the words of the man who faced death and swallowed death up and defeated the one who has the power of death so that the fear of death wouldn't hold any sway over us. And Polycarp stares it straight in the face and says, So what? That steadfast, enduring, persevering kind of faith. Because Polycarp had faith in the one who was made a little lower than the angels for a while. But now he's crowned with glory and honor. At present, at present we don't see everything in subjection to him. But we do see Jesus.